0: Ramble
1: The wait is over That is right Season 5 of The Kardashians is here Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster They're punching it into overdrive Kris, Courtney, Kim, Khloe, Kendall and Kylie Are back and continue to defy expectations In all their endeavors So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour Of the most iconic family on television The all new season of The Kardashians Premieres May 23rd Streaming on Hulu I would imagine every college student has a little bit of a secret or two that they're hiding from everyone else, right? Maybe one of them slept with her best friend's boyfriend. Maybe that boyfriend (laughs) physically bullied a pledge for his fraternity and he suffered minor injuries. I'm getting a little bit carried away, but like maybe one of them's hooking up with a professor. Maybe one of them is too scared to admit that they don't want to be a doctor just like their mom, just like their dad and the uncle and everybody else in the family they all have their little secrets. Sydney Powell's secret was fascinating, but even more intriguing was her way of going about things, her way of making sure that nobody found out her secret, nobody found out the truth. Sidney Powell's secret was that she wasn't in college at all, yet she would live in a dorm room with a roommate, have her backpack on, telling her friends, sorry, I can't hang out right now, I gotta go to class. She was a part of a sorority, She would come to all the sorority meetings. She was in the library stressing out about the next exam that they had. Hmm. She wasn't enrolled in the college at all. The dean and associate dean of student affairs, Michelle and John, at this university, they had multiple in-person meetings with Sydney. They all went something along the lines of, Sydney, you just can't go to sorority meetings when you're not enrolled here. Sydney, you have a few days to move out all of your belongings from the dorm rooms. Only full-time students can live on campus. You're not enrolled here. Sydney, is there something we can help you with? Why haven't you moved out yet after we've already told you, you can't keep living in the dorms? Like we said before, you don't go here. Sydney had been a student at the University of Mount Union, but she had been put on academic probation and had been suspended from the school this semester, meaning she no longer went here at least for the time being. That means she's not allowed to live on campus, she's not allowed to attend classes, engage in Greek sorority life. As far as Michelle and John were concerned, she's not a student here, but she refuses to leave. They had to wonder, okay, did she tell her parents yet? Is she trying to buy time? March 3rd, 2020, Sydney's mom, Brenda, she calls to ask the dean and the associate dean about her daughter. She's like, what's going on with Sydney? Is she in school? Is she not in school? Michelle and John, they had been in a meeting, so they didn't get around to calling her back for like an hour. Brenda picks up the phone and they're like, hi, this is, you know, Michelle and John calling you from the University of Mount Union. Hello, yes, thank you for calling me back. They didn't even start their conversation because it sounded like Brenda was getting attacked mid phone call. There was this loud thud that they heard then this crazy scream and then more pounding. It was like six, seven pounds, like, Boom, 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 boom. Really loud, just ringing through the phone. Michelle said that she heard some sort of eerie sound, kind of like like an expulsion of air. Someone had like the wind knocked out of them. That's how she imagines it would sound. Michelle and John are sitting in an office with the phone on speakerphone in between them and their eyes are wide. They're looking at each other like, what is going on? So they keep asking through the phone, Brenda, is everything all right over there? Do you need help? Is everything okay? It sounds like someone's being attacked. Mm -hmm. There's more screaming. And then the line goes dead. The office is silent. Immediately, Michelle and John, they start calling Brenda back. They call her, no response. They call her a second time, no response. They call her a third time. Finally, the line connects. Brenda, is that you? Are you there? Is everything all right? Finally, a voice on the other end says, Yes, this is Brenda. Michelle and John look at each other. And their eyes are like, probably bugging out of their head. They're confused, and they're shaking their heads slowly. They knew this was not Brenda. John says into the phone, this is not Brenda. Sydney, I know this is you. And the line goes dead. Sydney Powell, honor roll student, scholarship recipient, had just murdered her mom with a cast iron skillet and stabbed her in the neck 30 times with a steak knife. But why? As always, full show notes are available at RottenMinglePodcast.com. This is a fairly recent case with the verdict coming through just a month ago, like September 22nd, I want to say. And it's interesting because it wasn't a trial of who did it and how they did it, which is normally what we see in these murder cases, homicide trials, but more so a question of did the person know that murder is wrong? What? Yeah. So I feel like the tides on this case have been changing by the day while the trial was happening back in September. It felt like at one point everyone was 50-50. Then later I went back to check the discourse. Then it was like 70-30. So I'm just so interested to see what you guys have to think about this one. And with that being said, let's get started. March 3rd, 2020. Detective Kenneth is in the car when he hears the radio. Two faculty members of a local college called the police requesting a wellness check on one of their former students' houses. The radio said that it could be a potential break-in situation at this home. When he hears it's the Powell residence and he hears the address, his heart sinks. These are his friends. He went to school with Stephen Powell, the father of the house. He was the one that actually introduced Stephen Powell to his wife and the mother of their two kids, Brenda Powell, 25 years ago. Brenda was friends with Detective Kenneth's wife. So they were like, "Ah, your friend and my friend, they should totally date. Now they're married. They have two kids together. The kids are all old. They're like late teenagers and they could potentially be in danger. And another thing is, you know, the Powells, they were kind of the quintessential perfect American family. And I hate saying that because what does that even mean? Right. But genuinely, by definition, it would be the Powells. So we have Brenda and Stephen Powell and their two kids, Sydney, and then they have a younger son who's about like maybe two, three years younger. Mm -hmm. But if you ever saw a family and you thought, wow, they're super cute. Like they know what they're doing. That's a strong family unit. It would be the Powells. So Stephen worked as a vice president at his family's company. Brenda worked as a child life specialist at Akron Children's Hospital. And she worked in the pediatric oncology center, which is a really rough job. You're dealing with children who have cancer. Wow. And most people, they don't really last long in that department before they are requested to be transferred. They just, it's a lot. It takes a toll to come to work every single day and see children suffering, holding their hand while they're in pain, when they're losing their hair, when you lose a kid. And then to also be there for parents who are anxious and grieving, it's so draining. But Brenda was there for almost three decades. Wow. And she was the one that's like, okay, if anyone's going to be in here and make this a normal experience for the kids, it's going to be me. So she would have these proms so all the all the kids could go to prom. She would take them bowling. Everyone said she's like the mom in the hospital. She was the mom to the patient. She was the mom to the kids. But she was also a mom to the coworkers. She spent every Christmas Eve at the hospital with the kids. Even when she's not on shift. Everybody loved Brenda and the Powell daughter, Sydney, she's kind of the exact daughter that you would imagine Brenda to have. Honor roll student near 4.0 GPA in high school. The lowest grade that she's ever received on her report card was like a B. She gets admitted into the University of Mount Union, which isn't that far away. It's about less than an hour from their family home. And she got in with not a full scholarship, but a partial scholarship, like a presidential scholarship is what they called it. Yeah. And it covered a good chunk of her tuition. She was always that kid that other parents are like, why can't you be more like Sidney Powell? And the family was so close. They would go on family vacations every summer. They would go to the beach, Disney World. Brenda and Sydney, they were known by everybody to just be more than mother and daughter. They were like friends. Everyone said Sydney is Brenda's mini me. It's like copy paste. They would sit there for hours talking about anything, books, TV. They loved doing puzzles together. They never fought. It was just such a cute relationship. Neighbors said that the Powells were just very involved in each other's lives. They're the ones like the the family that you know, they know everything that's going on. They want to support each other. They would play sports in their yard. It's a very peaceful life. So when Kenneth hears that there's a potential break-in situation at the Powell house, his heart drops. He immediately calls Stephen Powell to make sure, hey, is anybody home? Is everybody okay? Like, what's going on? Stephen has no idea what's going on. He's like, I'm at work. He's just calling his daughter, Sydney, because last he checked, he was under the impression that both of them are home, which means if there's a break in, they could be in danger. He's frantic. He's calling. And as he's heading back, allegedly something very strange happens. Sydney calls her dad back after a bunch of missed calls and explains rather calmly, nothing is going on. Mom's on the phone with my university right now. And then suddenly, Sydney becomes hysterical on the call and starts explaining, Dad, someone broke in, someone broke in, I heard glass breaking, I heard glass breaking.
2: Mm, So she's trying to create a whole scenario on the phone.
1: But he already knew coming in. Oh, okay. Because he's already on the way. So it might be that she's creating a scenario without, I guess, realizing, allegedly, that he already knew that the cops were on the way. Mm. Yeah. And he lets her know, yeah, well, police is on the way and the call goes dead. So meanwhile, the police rush to the scene of a potential break-in, and this is very urgent. You're talking 1 p.m. on a Tuesday, nice, typically very safe, family-friendly neighborhood, potentially residents at home. When they get to the scene, there are no signs of intruders on the outside. So no suspicious cars parked in the driveway or the street, no masked figures hiding in the bushes, which is either really good or really bad. Either they left already, or they're still in the house with two residents. One officer runs to the back of the house to try and find like an alternative way in and a back window is broken. So he rushes in and from the front, there's another officer who's pounding on the door and finally it opens and it's Sydney Powell. She is hysterical. She's erratic. She's screaming, someone broke in, someone broke in. There's blood, blood, so much blood. Mom told me to get out, to get out. Mom, mom said, get out. The officer leads her outside. I mean, she's in no place to even talk... Her- straight, like she's just hysterical, right? And they just want to get her out of the house so that they can clear the whole place. The officer sits her on the ground outside and he's kind of, um, he's kind of holding her at arm's length and he's guiding her towards the end of the pavement. So from an observational standpoint and not a factual standpoint, just his body language, the way that he's guiding and holding her out at arm's length, a lot of netizens felt like the officer is on high alert of her.
2: Mm, already
1: yeah he has her sit on the ground and there is blood on cindy's hands and feet
2: like very recognizable
1: yes at one point it does appear that maybe potentially maybe speculating here that she was trying to hide her hands away from the officer i'm not sure if this is us just thinking too much into it i'm not sure if that was her intention or if it was some sort of coping mechanism to just kind of put her hands away for my audio listeners, I will describe all the notable parts of the body cam footage, but it's not necessarily the most important watch. You don't really see Sydney's face most of the time, and it's just kind of a bunch of officers talking over each other. It's, it's very hectic, so I'm going to cover all the key points. Now, Sydney is hysterical. She keeps screaming, there's so much blood. Please, no, please, so much blood. No, please. No! Eventually, Stephen Powell, Sydney's dad, shows up because remember his detective friend had called and was like, there's a break-in at your house. So he's rushing home. He starts running into the house before officers can stop him. Sydney is outside screaming, Daddy, Daddy, there's so much blood. Dad, glass, blood. Thankfully, officers stop him before he gets to Brenda because his wife was laying on the floor of their shared bedroom, covered in blood, 30 puncture wounds to her neck, a cast iron skillet and a bloody knife next to her head. She had been murdered. And outside was her daughter laying on the pavement, fully hysterical. Some said that she was becoming catatonic. She's clawing at the pavement, um, bleeding from her fingers. So she's clawing so hard that she's bleeding now. And apparently her eyes were rolling into the back of her head. She's laying her head down on the pavement, her, sh- her fingers are bleeding, there's blood on her feet, she's not responding to anyone. She just starts whispering at one point, get out, get out, get out, get out, like quietly to herself. That was on cam? Yeah. So the, most of the get out is on the ambulance on the way to the hospital, but it's just definitely something's going on. One officer is explaining the situation to a new officer who just arrived. And he says, I got a female here. She's got minor cuts on her hands. She's like hyperventilating. That's all she has minor cuts on her hands. Yeah. In another moment, one officer points at Sydney and just states, yeah, that's the suspect, (gasps) which is a lot. Okay. It's kind of passive aggressive and it seems like law enforcement already believes a version of events, right? Like when Sydney said there was a break in, why did they doubt it? Why? Because the whole house felt like one of those crime scene riddles. Do you know what I'm talking about? Those little riddles that you would do. And it's like, oh, who killed the mailman on a Sunday? And you're like, okay, was it the maid? Was it this person? It's like, you see this picture of the house and you're like, who's lying, right? Something's not right here. There were no signs of a break-in other than the window. So no ransacking of the home. The window was curiously broken from the inside out. Which doesn't make sense if there's intruders. There was also blood on the shattered glass, indicating that the window was broken after Brenda was already attacked. Because Brenda's blood was on the window parts. There were signs of a struggle between Brenda and Sydney. Sydney had minor cuts to her hands, and she pretended to be her mom on the phone with her university. Mm-hmm. All signs are pointing to, this was staged. This is not a break-in. Sydney killed her mom. But why? Mm -hmm. Why would a perfect honor roll student, mom's best friend, kill her mother? Yeah. Because her house of lies was starting to crumble down. Sydney had just been suspended from the University of Mount Union. After every semester at most institutions, there's usually a committee. And they'll go through um, every student that has a certain GPA. And I'm sure for every school, the threshold is different. But they will take a look at students that all have a GPA of under like 2.3. They place them on academic probation. And once you're on academic probation, that means this semester, if your GPA doesn't go up, you're going to be suspended from school. Like you need to get your act together. We're not going to let you take leadership positions in any organizations, in sororities, fraternities. You're not even allowed to play sports. You're just here to study. We've got counselors that are going to help you get back on track. Like we are going to tailor make plans and resources for you, but you need to get your grades up because if you don't, you get suspended. Now suspension, it sounds bad because, you know, it, it is bad, but it's basically the school saying you're suspended for a semester. Like we're on break, you and me. So take a semester to go home, recalibrate your life, rethink your life decision, handle any personal matters that are making you stressed out from school. Figure out what your problem is on your own time. And typically when students come back from suspension, they resume where they started. Mm -hmm. Now it's the next semester, once they get back, they can't get their GPA up. Then they could be looking at dismissal, which means you cannot come back to the school. Like you're done. So suspension is kind of like a a second chance. It's a reset. And compared to a dismissal or like an expulsion, I'm sure it's stressful, but it's nothing too bad. Like really in the grand scheme of life, you're gonna be fine. Yeah. Sydney Powell was suspended for the spring semester of 2020, meaning she was formally suspended starting January 2020. But literally zero people in her life knew about this. She but didn't. But wh- why yes.
2: is she suspended?
1: Her GPA fell to
2: 2.2. Oh, what happened?
1: I don't know. You know, some people say that she was just struggling to adapt to college. Some people say mm-hmm. that it could have been the freedom of living at the dorms instead of with her parents.
2: Okay, so nothing big. No. In life that happened. It
1: didn't seem like there was a traumatic event that Mm -hmm. made her unfocused on her studies. Yeah. I see. So she doesn't tell her parents this. Her younger brother, her best friends, not even her roommate that she's known since they were kids. Maybe even earlier than that. She told absolutely no one about her suspension. And it's not like she ran away and hid from the world and cut off contact so that she would never have to tell them. She stayed on campus. She lived on the dorms, pretended to study with her friends, walked to class with her friends, talked about her schoolwork, even went to sorority meetings. For almost two months, Sydney was getting away with it. And I'm genuinely so curious about exactly how she got away with it. Okay, so first of all, her key card was disconnected because she was suspended and technically no longer a student. So how is she getting into the dorm building? How is she getting into libraries or cafeterias or main buildings where the classes are held? Would she just wait around until she saw someone go in and tell them that she lost her card? But then also, how many times can you tell your friend that you lost your key card? And when everyone is walking to class, if you have your little backpack on and she's like, oh, my class is that way. Right. And then what do you just like wait outside? Do you go to the bathroom? Like, where are you going? Do you go back to the dorm room? honestly it's kind of fascinating that she pulled it off for two full months like the logistics of this operation is very interesting every little thing would require a lot of thought it's not everything just,
2: is a lie everything you say is a lie
1: yeah and every action waiting in front of the building you know like these are all everything is thought out kind of is yeah. my opinion and a lot of people's opinion <laughs> stores stores. The Dash Pass practically pays for itself in two orders on average. The math is mathing. Plus Dash Pass gives you special access to exclusive promotions and menu items and all of this for only $9.99 a month. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for Dash Pass today only on DoorDash and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change. Terms apply. Audible now free for thirty days. Visit Audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to five hundred five hundred. That's Audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to five hundred five hundred to try Audible free for thirty days. Now Sydney is pretending to be enrolled in school for almost two months till the associate dean of students, student affairs, has a very confusing incident with another student the president of Sydney sorority comes in and is like, hey, this is my roster of everyone that's going to be paying dues this semester. And they have to like do a little check with all the enrollments. It's like a whole administrative thing. And the president of the sorority is saying, we just got like a paperwork issue because we got an email saying that one of the sorority sisters is no longer enrolled at the school, but she's enrolled at the school and she just paid dues. And the associate dean is like, "Mm, I feel like she's not enrolled here. Let me check. And she's like, no, I remember. I remember vividly. And she tells the president of the sorority she's actually not enrolled this semester. Now, Michelle does not reveal to this other student why Sydney was not enrolled. She never said she was suspended. A lot of people will just not enroll for a semester because they want to focus on other things. It's very normal. There's nothing bad about it. But the sorority student is like, "Uh, yeah, she is. <laughs> like, I just saw her going to class yesterday and she's living in the dorm. So she's she's for sure enrolled and Michelle takes note of this later she goes to check if Sydney had appealed the suspension because you can do that but she hadn't records show that she was not enrolled and that is so strange how can she even go to classes when she's not enrolled she literally can't sign up for classes she's thinking maybe Sydney doesn't even know she's suspended but she knew. The school will send out an email alerting the student of their status, but they'll also send out a letter by mail and it has to be signed for. Sydney signed for the letter of suspension. She knew that she was suspended. So Michelle called Sydney into their office and asked her, What's going on? Sydney at first is acting a little confused. She's like, Was I suspended? Was I not suspended? <laughs> Beats me and Michelle is like, no, 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 you're suspended. (laughs) Like you cannot keep living on campus. Okay. Like if you need help telling your parents, if you need help packing, we can try to find you help, but you're not enrolled this semester. Sydney tells her, okay, yeah, no, it's fine. I can handle it. I just need a few days to move out, pack my things. Michelle is very understanding about this. She even reinstates Sydney's key card so that she can use it and make the process of moving out easier because how are you even getting into the dorm building right now? Mm Mm-hmm. A few days later, Michelle goes to check the dorms to see if Sydney had moved out. And no, she had not moved out. Now, side note, it does seem like the school is being very particular about it, but it's the rules. I'm sure they have safety rules, occupancy rules. And also, Sydney didn't pay tuition. And you know, private institutions love their money. Yeah. I
2: mean, yeah. If you don't go to school, then <laughs>
1: you can't live don't at the door. Stay
2: here. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. So Michelle calls Sydney into the office again to talk about it. Like, hey, you know, you can't live here if you don't go here. This time, the dean of student affairs, so kind of like her boss, Michelle's boss, John Fraser, was also in the office. And they were very nice, they tell her, listen, you can still visit your friends, you can still hang out here, but technically you can't pretend to go to classes, you can't go to sorority meetings, you can't live on the dorm. This is late February of 2020. So the semester started January of 2020, that is more than enough time for Sydney to have found her own place or go back home, which is less than an hour away. Sydney's like, yeah, no, I get it. I just need a tiny bit more time to move out." And they're thinking, okay, did you tell your parents what's going on? Yeah. Do you want us to ask your parents if they can help you move? She's like, no, 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 it's fine. Like, my parents are having problems with my brother and they're on vacation right now. So I'm just going to handle it myself. Michelle and John tell her that, you know, she could still visit and it's fine, right? Just can't live here. She officially leaves campus February 25th. Seven days later, she would kill her mom. March 3rd was spring break everyone in the Powell family was looking forward to it so Mount Union was less than an hour away but Sydney didn't really come home on the weekends she would only come home to visit her family on holidays on breaks on special occasions but spring break is a full week of family time so the plan was March 3rd Sydney would attend her classes then come home at night to spend the rest of the week with her family Brenda was so excited about this. She would call her mom, telling her mom, like, oh, I'm gonna take her shopping, I'm gonna do this, I'm just so stoked, like, the excitement is there. But maybe it's also a good time to talk about all the weird things that the Powell parents had been experiencing. Because before spring break, Sydney started making more frequent trips to the house. And the Powell's thought it was a little strange Because, well, she never really did this, but also she's coming home at times that there would normally be classes. So think weekdays 9 to 5. At one point, Brenda even texted Sydney about attending classes and Sydney said, My teacher and her husband are on vacation. We just have to fill out these worksheets. And Brenda texted her, Why do I always feel like you're scamming me? Just remember, you need to keep your grades up to keep your scholarship. Sydney responded, Yes, I know. My grades are good. Thank you very much. Maybe Brenda was thinking this would be a good time to figure out what's going on with her daughter and just feel more connected with her. It seemed like both parents were kind of picking up things that weren't right with Sydney. Like something was clearly going on. Even January 2020, Mr. Powell noticed that the tuition hadn't been taken from his account, which she has a scholarship, but like I said, it's not a full ride. So they need to pay tuition and it hadn't been withdrawn. He thought it's weird. So he goes to the online school portal to log in and see what's going on, but it won't let him log in. He's like, okay, he tells Sydney about it. And she's like, oh, it's probably some sort of like tech issue. Like, I'm going to look into it. Don't worry, I got it. At first, he trusts her. He has no reason to doubt her. But slowly things get a little bit stranger. And I don't think either of them had any idea like how bad it was. So she had a 2.2 GPA. She was suspended for the semester. She got kicked out of the dorm room. And the one week between leaving the dorm room to going for spring break at her parents' house, she was staying at random hotels and asking her friends if she could stay with them. Because she didn't want to tell her parents why she was home a week early.
2: So even after that, right? It's spring break for a week. And then what? Right? So maybe she's you know finally it's it's coming to an end for her cuz mm-hmm. like, yeah what she,
1: yeah like this, she can't hide it any longer she knows that yeah what is she planning on doing a week later Well, I guess she had no plans or she had other plans, right? So March 3rd, 2020, Sydney is supposed to be back later at night for spring break. But Mr. Powell, that day at work, he tries to log into the online portal again and it's not working. So he takes the initiative as a good dad to call the school personally and say, Hey, listen, like the tuition's not going through. I don't know what the problem is. And they tell him, well, the tuition isn't going through because Sydney is not enrolled this semester. He's so confused. He checks his Life360 app, which is the whole family uses it to share their locations. So he doesn't use it that often, I'm assuming. So he just randomly checks it because of this whole news. And Sydney is home. And she said that she had classes and she'd be coming home after classes at like, let's say six o'clock. It's not six o'clock yet. So maybe what the school is saying is true. But that would mean that she had been lying since January.
2: Wait, when was this?
1: March 3rd the day of spring break So Mr. Powell leaves his workplace To go see his daughter at home But he also leaves his phone Because he doesn't want Sydney to know That he's coming home to confront her Mm, Wow Yeah So he shows up unannounced at the house and they talk. And it's said that she just told him that she is still going to try and take some classes, do some homework on the side, but she's having a rough time. She confided in him that she wanted to maybe take the semester off. So he doesn't... It's speculated that he doesn't know that she was suspended. The school told him that she's not enrolled this semester. Mm. But because she's 19, she's a legal adult, they're telling him, like, you got to ask her for the details.
2: I see. So he doesn't know exactly like her grades, all of that. Okay.
1: And I think she probably lost her scholarship. I think I'm assuming, right? Because Mm -hmm. I, what I'm gathering from the trial and from what he's stating, it seems like Sydney still didn't tell him the truth. Mm -hmm. That is the speculation because he just kept saying, no, I think that you should finish your classes and then summer break. We can figure something out. It'll just be a lot cleaner that way. Like that's the way it should be done. But she kept saying that she's discouraged because all of her friends know what they want to do in life and she doesn't know and she doesn't have her shit together. And he's telling her that's not true. okay? so maybe tonight when your mom gets home from work, I still have to go back to work like we can all have a conversation about it. So he starts heading back to work. When he gets there, he ends up calling Brenda and telling her the gist of what happened with Sydney, giving her like the spark notes version. And she's like, you know what? I'm going to leave work early because this is a big deal. She says that she will talk to Mount Union, she will talk to Sydney, and they're going to figure it out. It doesn't seem like Brenda was mad at all. She just wanted to help her daughter out and be there for her. So Brenda actually got her degree in childhood development. She's around children and conflict all the time. So she, if there's anyone that can handle a situation like this with compassion, but also a level of firmness, it's going to be Brenda. Just to give preface, Brenda's I just can't imagine. And I don't think that this is what happened based on everybody's statements. She's not the type of mom that's gonna come in screaming and kicking like, how dare you? You're disgusting, you're a disappointment. It seems like she would be a bit more gentle, you know? She's gonna get to the bottom of it, but it's not gonna be this horrendous experience. So on the way home, Brenda calls the Dean of Student Affairs and they're both not picking up. So Michelle and John are both in a meeting. She leaves a message and they would call Brenda back but she would already be home talking to Sydney at that point. By the end of the phone call, Brenda would have three puncture wounds to her neck, and she would be hit on the head multiple times with a cast iron skillet.
0: What happened next?
1: Um. There was a very large or a very loud sort of thud sound, like a pound, a pounding or a thud, um, accompanied by a by a pretty loud scream. Um, and um, the scream might have actually. Pr- been first, and then the thud. Okay. As I think about it, and then um, there was sort of a an expulsion. The other sound that I heard at that same time or, or right after was sort of an expulsion of air, like the air was knocked out of somebody. Okay. Um, I, I, I'd always heard that expression of the air being not, you know, having the wind knocked out of you, but I didn't. That's actually what it sounded like. Um, and then several more repeated. <laughs> Thuds. sydney's family they paid the bail she was sent to live with grandma brenda's mom wow. on a hundred acre farm and a lot of netizens wondered how her grandma is okay with living with the person who killed her own daughter or how she even feels safe but the whole family is standing behind sydney they believe that she was insane at the time of the murder that she never meant to kill her mom sydney said i blacked out that day She remembers little flashes, little bits of the day. She remembers crying and feeling the need to get away and hearing these voices in her head that kept telling her that she's a loser and she's worthless and that she needs to kill herself. And then she didn't know what was going on. At one point, she remembers hearing the glass break and then there was blood. There was so much blood and she was trying to stop the blood and it was just, there were cartoon figures and then fire was coming out of her hands. So she's saying, I didn't mean to do any of this. And her whole family is sticking behind her. But regardless of that, the case was going to go to trial. And Sydney's dad, Stephen Powell, the victim's husband, but also the defendant's dad said, this goes against what Brenda would have wanted. I don't know why we're doing this. This isn't what anyone wants here. I don't know how she can handle it. Meaning Sydney. I don't know how I can handle it. I'm trying to keep my family together. He said he a thousand percent believes that Sydney was having a psychotic break the day of the murder and should not be tried. Now, this case is going to be really, really trial heavy because you know we know the facts of the crime, right? But the main reason that this case has been so controversial and honestly, for lack of a better word, captivating for a lot of people is the trial itself. And the question of, was Cindy Powell insane at the time of killing her mom, her best friend with a cast iron skillet and a steak knife?
2: A steak knife?
1: A steak knife. It's a question of, was it mental illness Or was it psychosis? Because clearly she's unwell, but that's not the problem here right? Mm-hmm. Because these are two very different things. I think the whole basis of the trial and pleading not guilty by reason of temporary insanity, the defense has to prove that Sydney was insane at the time of the murder. Not mentally ill, not depressed, not schizophrenic, not anxious, but genuinely, psychotically broken down, detached from reality, does not understand their actions. Mm. So that's very different. You can be depressed and schizophrenic and all these other things, but not be psychotic. At the time of a murder, which I think that's been a huge part of why there's so much discourse around this case, because some people are arguing, no, the diagnosis is like, it's very easy to become psychotic with this diagnosis. Some people are saying, absolutely not. It's not like, what are you talking about? There's just a lot of discourse. But just something to keep in mind while we get into the trial. The argument is, was she insane at the time of the murder? Not before, not after, but during the murder. So that's mainly what the trial focuses on. And it does kind of bulldoze through Brenda's life. I think the whole situation is really sad. Um, Brenda as a victim doesn't seem to have her story shared in a way that it likely would have been had the killer not been her own daughter. And the victim and the defense's families, they're the same family. I don't know. I just, I I guess I feel for Brenda Powell and her family. I'm sure it's a very complicated feeling and I'm sure that the trial makes them feel victimized twice from this incident. So let's go over what we thought were the most pivotal arguments in the trial and you can come to your own conclusion at the end. The defense argued that Sydney was suffering from blackouts and hallucinations. They brought in three experts to argue that Sydney was insane at the time of the murder. They said that she was experiencing auditory hallucinations, even visual hallucinations. She was seeing cartoon figures that she saw water and flames squirting out of her hands. She felt like everyone was watching her, analyzing her, that the FBI was monitoring her. They stated that schizophrenia does tend to manifest in the late teenage years or early 20s. So Sydney was 19 at the time of the murder. It has been proven that there is a link between stress and triggering symptoms of schizophrenia or making it worse. They also argued that Sydney had two concussions when she was younger. So she got them while she was playing soccer as a kid. And there are speculations and some loose studies done. So I say loose not because there's no correlation, but loose because it seems like most medical f- professionals cannot agree definitively the link between concussions in early childhood and psychological problems later on. There's definitely could be a cause and effect, but we don't know exactly how strong it is. And we, we've gone through this whole thing. We talked about a lot of serial killers that we covered uh, when we were just doing audio episodes, but a lot of them would fall off swings and hit their heads. And it's, it was always the swings. There are also some studies that show that concussions and brain trauma can have early links to schizophrenia. But those don't really seem to be fleshed out studies. But a huge argument the defense had was what would be the reason for Sydney to kill her mom? It seems like taking one small problem and blowing it up, you know? They argued that she didn't even go through the basic steps someone would take after murdering. She didn't wash the blood off of her. She didn't change her clothes. She didn't flee in her car. There's like three cars parked in the driveway. They said that her actions were insane. She had no motive. There was no planning of the incident. There was no attempt to flee afterwards. They argue she's clearly losing her mind. She's whispering, get out get out, get out, to herself while being transported to the hospital. She's seeing hallucinations. She's hearing voices telling her to hurt herself. Maybe, they even speculated during the trial, maybe she saw Brenda as an extension of herself and thought she was hurting herself. That train of thinking was quickly put out by the court. But they said, the day of the murder, she's catatonic, you know? You see her in the body cam footage at the end of the driveway. I mean, she is not there. She's incoherent. She cannot talk to anyone. The expert said, and I quote, Nobody's home. She's gone. Nobody's home up there. She's completely lost awareness. They also argue that after being released on bail, she spent nine days in psychiatric care. Nine days. They argue that the doctors were only there to figure out what was wrong with her, and she was diagnosed with schizophrenia at that point and given heavy medication. They said she has no history of violence, no history of antisocial behavior, substance abuse, or any major prior mental disorders. Brenda was also comforting Sydney in her last moments. Why would she kill her? The prosecutors argued that there is no evidence of her being broken or detached from reality. So now the state, you know, are saying, other than her saying I hallucinated, we don't see any of these symptoms before, during, or after the murder. And that's not the argument. The argument is during the murder. So they're like, let's look at during the murder, right? So clearly, clearly, Sydney was exhibiting symptoms of anxiety and panic attacks before the murder. Okay. So a lot of her friends testified, like, you know, she was definitely withdrawing from us in our friend group. And the defense kind of tried to use these as uh, c She was going through it and the prosecutors are like anxiety and depression are not blackouts and hallucinations That's mental illness. We're talking psychosis very different things They also argued that her constant lies to everyone around her about still being in college That is not consistent with a psychotic break They said that is not consistent of a false reality that she's living in So the defense says she's so unhinged She created this false reality that she's still in college And the prosecutors are saying, no, that's just more consistent with someone that is deceiving and manipulating and lying and doesn't want to face the truth. At one point, the prosecutor's side brought up that Lauren, so a good childhood friend of Sydney and her roommate in college, so she was brought up to the stand to testify. And Lauren never mentioned a thing about Sydney having blackouts or hallucinations. And the state is arguing if anyone was going to see that side of Sydney, it was going to be her roommate that she's sharing these cramped quarters with. She said Sydney was fine, she seemed a little stressed out, she seemed like maybe anxious, but I didn't see any blackouts or hallucinations. Another friend of Sydney's was brought in to testify and she said that Sydney reported having these really vivid dreams. They were apparently so scary, like these nightmares were so intense, that Sydney would be a bit shaken up for a few days afterwards. A lot of netizens had problems with this testimony. They argued, I also have nightmares and I sleepwalk. I have sleep paralysis like every other night and I never thought about killing my mom. Others argued, this is just getting goofy. Everyone is just grasping at straws to make it seem like this girl is suffering from hallucinations when like the rest of us, she's just having vivid nightmares. Which, to clarify, I personally am not downplaying anyone's experiences with Vivid Dreams or their emotional response to it, right? But I'm just informing you guys of a lot of the netizen discourse about this particular subject. Because this clip kind of went viral on, like, YouTube shorts even. And the only thing that I can say about this is, I think the argument for insanity just was not the strongest here. Like, you cannot plead insanity and then one of your friends is like, she would have these really intense nightmares. Did um, Sydney ever talk to you about, did you ever aware of any kind of hallucinations or vivid vivid visuals or anything like that?
0: She would mention very vivid dreams, whether if it was dreams while she was sleeping or daydreams, I don't remember, but she would have these vivid dreams that she would tell us about that really would scare her and, um, she would be very shy for the next couple days after.
1: Even if Sydney was genuinely insane at the moment, I think this argument is bad. Got it. So I think that's why a lot of people were picking at it and like, "Uh, what what is this?" you know? Mm-hmm. My dog, Mango, has been with me through some really crazy times in life. I mean, she's been with us for the past 10 years. If you guys don't know, Mango is my little French bulldog with half hair, okay? She's fuzzy only half the time, and she is literally the glue of my family. I have quite literally named an entire podcast and a YouTube channel from my dog, Mango. She is the reason that these channels exist. But three years ago, Mango was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease and she was always at risk of excessive bleeding. Her fur was falling out in clumps. It was it was a pretty stressful time in my life. I was constantly emotional about Mango being in pain and then I would be, get so stressed out every time I started going over the vet bills. Every time we took her to the vet, it was like thousands of dollars because her condition was so difficult to treat. And I am just so thankful that we had savings to cover it. I wish I had known about Spot Pet a few years back, it would have just eased so much of that stress. Our partner Spot Pet Insurance is here to share a message today on how they are a secret weapon against the unexpected. Because with Spot Pet Insurance, you can get up to ninety percent cash back on eligible vet bills. Our dogs are always there for us during our hardest times, and we need to be there for them too. Go to spotpet.com today and get a quote instantly. Visit spotpet.com. Paid ad from Spot Pet Insurance. Waiting periods, annual deductibles, co insurance, benefit limits, and exclusions may apply. For all terms, visit spotpetins.com slash sample policy. Insurance plans are underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by Spot Pet Insurance Services, LLC. apartments.com apartments.com the place to find a place now another moment that kind of gets brought up in the same vein is one of sydney's high school teachers testified about an incident during junior year where sydney was freaked out about having to give a presentation at school and she said that all the numbers were kind of getting blurry in her mind she was so anxious they're jumbled together
0: i didn't have a class so it must have been when i had a planning period and i was in, alone in my room, and the two of them came in, and Sydney was crying, um, and she was, she was, I would say, distraught. And um, I said, you know, what's, what's wrong? And she said that she had a test, or I think it was a presentation uh, for a chemistry class, and she said, I, I, can't, I can't see the numbers. And I said, what, what do, you, what do you mean you can't see the numbers? She's like, I can't see the numbers. I can't present, I can't see what's in front of me. And I said, okay. I said, um, you know, how can I help you? What do you want me to do? And um, I mean, she was she was really upset. She was she was um, yeah. She was pretty upset about it. So I said, well, what do you want me to do? Do you want to go down and talk to the teacher, or do you want me to? And she asked me to go. So I went down and I talked to our teacher and I said, look, Sydney's really upset. She says she can't see the numbers. She's um, asking if she could take the test on another day. And the teacher said, yes, of course. And so um, I went up and told Sydney, and uh, and so I. I assume she took the test on another day. wasn't, you know, I
1: wasn't the person in charge of that test. Okay. This was used by the defense as a way of saying, hey, these issues, these psychological issues were there since she was younger and stress can make it worse. Prosecutors would argue that's just a panic attack. Lots of people have panic attacks. Doesn't mean they go kill people. Like that's not a psychotic break. So I don't know. You know, some people like the arguments. Some people felt like, is this even a strong correlation with insanity? Anyway. To say that she was hallucinating to the point of killing someone and then her friend saying that she had vivid dreams just overall not a great look for the defense but the same friend amanda did say that whenever sydney was stressed out she would confide in her mom and the defense used this to argue sydney had no reason to kill her mom her mom was on her side but the prosecutors argued the same point but oppositely they said actually she would be willing to go to great lengths to not disappoint her mom. Even Amanda backed that up. She said, yeah, Sydney, as a friend, from what I knew, she would not want to disappoint her parents. Prosecutors argue the timing of when Sydney killed her mom seems consistent with their theory that her mom is on the phone. She's about to find out the full truth of Sydney's lies, not even, Hey, I want to take some time off of school and figure out what I want to do, but no, your grades are bad. You're going to lose your scholarship. You're being suspended. The disappointment must've been huge. Maybe even the biggest that Sydney would have to get from her mom and maybe the anticipation of that, the stress of that, in that moment, it was a crime of passion for her wanting to prevent her mom from finding out the truth. They argued, as for Sydney freaking out when the cops arrive, whispering, get out, because a lot of people use this as, see, she was having a psychotic breakdown. They're saying, actually, that could be a very normal trauma response to killing someone. Even if you're not in psychosis, if you kill someone you're going to have a strong mental emotional reaction. It doesn't mean that she was necessarily insane the whole time she killed her mom. She could have been very well sane and then had a breakdown after the shock kicked in that, oh my God, I just killed my mom. They argued that her answering the phone during and right after the murder and pretending to be her mom does not feel like she was disassociating from reality. They said it felt more like she was trying to buy time. The prosecutors also poured through her text, email, search history before the murder and everything seemed normal. They said at that point, when you're in that state where you can't even tell that murder is wrong and that you're murdering your mom, your search history is going to be weird. Your actions are going to be weird. Your call log history, your text messages, they're going to be weird. They're not going to be normal. She even went to a viewing party of The Bachelor with her friends the night before. The prosecutors argue, what? Are we talking about temporary insanity for five minutes? In the end, they argue that the defense's experts relied heavily on everything Sydney said to them after the murder. But that's not the point. The prosecutors are arguing it's during the murder. Was she insane during the murder? And they think all signs lead to no. They argued all the defense experts are drawing from their interactions with her after the murder instead of during. They also don't even think Sydney had schizophrenia during the murder. They said she had borderline personality traits, malingering, which is someone who exaggerates and stretches the truth to get out of work or obligations, and probably had some sort of anxiety disorder. There are a few people, um, well, not a few people, a lot of people online that have armchair diagnosed her with narcissism. A lot of people speculate that she did this because Sydney's whole identity became being smart being the honor roll kid, being the kid that everybody else's parents are so jealous of. She based her superiority and her identity based on that. And when that was about to come crumbling down, she had to prevent people from finding out the truth. So she did something so drastic because that can really be the only way to, I guess for a lot of people to connect a motive to the situation.
2: Yeah, I feel like we've heard of that before. Yeah.
1: I mean, there are a few more notable parts of the trial that netizens have been talking about. So we're just going to quickly cover those. For one, Sydney was crying a lot throughout the trial. Some netizens argued that Sydney kept squeezing her eyes, trying to make sniffling noises, but no tears ever came out. I will say that she did exhibit some really intense facial emotions during the trial. So whether they were natural and a byproduct of her feeling those said emotions or her faking it. I I guess that's up for you to decide. But she was seen constantly crying. She was seen covering her ears, cringing, like physically reacting to what people were saying on the stand specifically people who are not on her side, I guess, right? Just
2: covering her ear?
1: Yeah, so that's a huge argument as well, right? So when she's covering her ear, a lot of netizens didn't like it. They were saying the act of covering her ear feels very childish. And it's like a little kid that's like, "Mm, I can't hear you, I don't want to hear you, right? She's 23 at the time of the trial. I don't think that I would have done that at 23. It's just very odd.
2: There must be some psychological reasons behind that motion, right?
1: So um, there's two sides to it. So the people that are very not pro-Sydney, right? Like they think that she's faking it. This is all a plea to get out of jail. They think that she's doing this to kind of seem like a baby. Seem like a baby to the jury. Or maybe it's just so natural to her. Like this is how she handles herself with her family. She doesn't like something. She covers her ear. She doesn't like it. She doesn't look at it. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, maybe that's how she approached the whole school thing. She just won't look at it. Mm. So people think that this is a type of behavior that her family must have cultivated and encouraged somehow. And it's showing up in court. Other people are saying, well, no, like we also struggle with mental illnesses and it could be so that she doesn't trigger something in her when she's listening to it. But I, I don't know, Right. Like, what do you guys think about her covering her ears? She's 23 at this point. Seems
2: very interesting. Well, yeah,
1: it's interesting. Another point of contention during the trial was Sydney was allowed to be excused a lot during the more intense parts of the trial. During the body cam footage viewings and the forensic pathologist testimonies, she was allowed out of the courtroom. And netizens felt like, again, why are we babying a full grown woman? This is what she did. And she can't even confront what she did. Others said she's already on her path to recovery. This would unnecessarily send her back. Why? Like, do you think that she doesn't know what she did? So it kind of feels like there's two main camps. One camp who's like, yeah, no, she's not mentally insane at the time of the murder. Look at the things that she did. She picked up the phone pretending to be her mom, staged a crime scene, broke a window, did all of these things. So no, no insanity. Then you have another camp that's like, well, I've struggled with something like this. And you truly don't know what it's like until you've been there. But there's actually a third group that's like, I struggle with schizophrenia and I would never do this. And the fact that she's trying to use schizophrenia as a way to get out of this heinous crime makes it harder for us. The people who struggle with it nonstop and don't commit crimes. It only further stigmatizes schizophrenia and becomes yet another link made by the general population between the diagnosis of schizophrenia and violence and then you have a lot of netizens who just blame the family and sydney for what happened they believe that sydney was spoiled and made to believe that she would get away with anything they think that she did this because she doesn't understand the consequences of her actions and they argue that them bailing her out immediately and babying her and rallying around her is a prime example of that this is what they're saying i genuinely have no opinion on this case a big point of contention, though, for these, this group was that um, Brenda's mom was testifying. So this is Sydney's grandma. And a lot of netizens felt like Brenda's own mom doesn't seem that emotional that her granddaughter killed her own daughter. She seemed more emotional on the stand talking about how the police made her go to the wrong hospital the day of and how it took them so long to take out the audio recorder to record the interview. They were like, it's just so weird that she doesn't seem gutted. But then again, we really don't know these people. We don't know how they grieve, and I don't think we are able to dictate that. So I really don't know. So on the defense side, we had three expert psychologists that testified she was schizophrenic and insane at the time of the murder. The prosecutor brought forth one expert. Now, something to note is that the defense side, did you know, that you have to pay for these experts? So, you know, they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. I'm sure part of it is, but um, it was reiterated over and over again during the trial that each of the three defense experts were paid anywhere between eight to fifteen thousand dollars to t- testify. Huh. So they're paid around two fifty to three fifty an hour.
2: That's so interesting. Yeah. So you can pay like for a bunch of quote experts to, to defend you
1: in yeah. court. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, definitely, if they're lying, it could damage their reputation and they could lose this source of income. Mm-hmm. But I. You know, it's one of those things where humans aren't perfect, though. So you have to wonder how much confirmation bias is playing a role in either side, both sides, really. And what's interesting is that while all this online discourse is happening, it does seem that Sydney's lawyers were taking note. So, (laughs) which it's a speculation, but if it's true, I guess it's good. That's what good attorneys do. But to give you an example, early on in the trial, Sydney showed up with black nail polish. And a lot of netizens pointed to the fact that it just seemed like she didn't care. She just... They hated her nails. It it stood out when she was wiping her face with her tears. And very soon after, the rest of the trial, natural nails. No black nail polish. So it does seem like someone on the team was listening to social media discourse, potentially speculating here. Also, they requested that she have a therapy dog during the trial, which a lot of people were so upset by.
2: Like emotional support dogs?
1: Yeah, this... You know, listen, I'm all for therapy dogs. I'm all for emotional support dogs. But when... (laughs)
2: Wait, so there was a big dog sitting next to No, door, no, or? they rejected. Oh, okay, Because, okay.
1: you know, it's like during trials, there was another case we recently did where they asked for like a...
2: A blanket or something?
1: Yes, a comfort blanket. And you're mm-hmm. like, mm, just, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to suck it up sometimes. This yeah. is kind of one of those situations.
2: Yeah, especially in front of... I mean, this case is different, but when yeah. there's victims' families and... Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like, all right, you don't get to, you don't get to do that right now. (laughs) I mean, this trial is just filled with a lot of heated moments. The most questionable moment outside of the murder itself was when Sydney's attorney had this really odd intimate moment with her in the courtroom. So Sydney is sitting down and he's approaching his chair. So he's standing, walking towards her. He puts one hand on her shoulder, but it's near her neck, which, you know, one would argue is kind of an intimate positioning. And then he leans his head down and whispers something super close to her ear. It almost looks like he's kissing her head. That's how close he is. And she mouths something to him. And it seems like she says, I love you. Later, the attorney stated, he whispered, Brenda loves you and so do I. A small group of people felt like that's refreshing for someone to have an attorney that genuinely cares about them. That's good. Others argue, not the time nor the place. Some people said it just felt really strange. Like a little unprofessional, a really weird, like never seen before in a courtroom type vibe. In the end, 23-year-old Sydney was found guilty of murder, assault, and tampering with evidence. She was sentenced to life in prison, but she can get out in 15 years on parole. Which means if she serves the minimum sentence, she will be 38 years old when she gets out. Which honestly is not that old. Sydney and her team plan to appeal this decision and her attorney said this was injustice. So there's just been a lot of mixed reactions, you know, half the people, I would say a good majority of the people seem very happy that she was found guilty. Um, they believe that Sydney is a narcissist using mental health to try and get away from her consequences. They think that she was feeling superior to everyone by being a good student and now that she had lost that, she was losing her ego and narcissists will kill to protect their ego. A netizen said she was sane enough to pose as her mom on the phone with the deans and sane enough to make up a story about strangers breaking in. If you're insane, you don't have the capacity to cover up your crimes. I hope the jury sees all that and holds her accountable. Even if her condition is severe and that's what caused her to murder her mother, then she's sick enough to live in a mental institution for the rest of her life. You don't allow a person like that that's capable of things like this to walk amongst the rest of us. Another netizen said, When you're schizophrenic, you can absolutely lie and try to cover up things when you're in the middle of an episode or psychosis. The part of her brain during psychosis that made her kill her mother would be the same part of her brain that is telling her to lie and cover it up. Schizophrenia is a very scary illness, especially when left untreated. I don't know. What are your thoughts? How do you think the appeal is going to go? Do you think this was justice? Do you feel safer knowing that Sydney's not going to be on the streets at least for 15 years? Or do you think this was a major injustice and now mental health will be even more stigmatized? And this is just another reminder of that, right? I don't think that I have a personal opinion on this one, um, just mainly because of how complicated it is. Even though there's technically justice, the victim's family feel even more injustice with the verdict. So it's just a situation where I don't think I can really have an opinion. It's just hard for me to say one way or another. But I will say, just an observation of years of being interested in these types of cases. Sydney is eligible for parole in 15 years for a violent murder. That to me, just from like the history of what we've seen so far, personally, doesn't seem like a lot. And I'm not saying she deserves it, doesn't deserve it. It's not like a take on that. It just seems like, it it does seem like the sentencing itself was a little more lenient even though the verdict was not what they were hoping for. Yeah, it's just sad. Um, A lot of netizens said, for Brenda's family and her coworkers that loved her, they're being robbed twice. They're robbed of Brenda, but some of them might even feel robbed to the right to get justice. Like you want to hate the person that took this mother figure out of your life, but it was her own child that she cherished and loved. So how are you supposed to feel about it? And that is the current viral case of Sidney Powell. What are your thoughts? Not to be confused with the other Sidney Powell that's also in a trial. But that one's a political one. Yeah, it's all about the election and stuff. Anyway, yeah. Let me know your thoughts. And I will see you guys on Wednesday for the main episode. Bye.